So I think that in the end, it's not one or the other. We need to stop thinking binary terms, the office versus remote, and rather think, when shall we use which? For example, deep solo work. If I need to write a presentation, an article, uh, put together a proposal for my boss or for stakeholders, I don't need to be in the office. Actually, it's better to do it from home. When we want to build culture, you can do it remotely, but then having time, I mean, going out for dinner, nothing beats that. You know, the experience to have some fun with your colleagues and talk about life, not work, well, that's better doing in person. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Gustavo Rossetti. And we've had Gustavo on the melting pot before. He's the inventor of Culture Canvas, which is a deliberate culture design tool that we use with clients. And he's spent the pandemic writing a new book, which is called Remote Not Distant. And he takes that concept of des deliberate design of culture and he applies it to new, the new normal, I guess, hybrid workplace. How do you design a culture where not everybody's office-based, no matter whether they're 100% remote or 100% in the office with some flexibility? How do you design a, a business culture deliberately to not just survive, but to thrive? He takes us through in the book, how to write a purpose statement, how to design a culture, how to think about feedback, how to think about building psychological safety. And we have a great conversation, picking his brains about some best practice that he found as he was researching the book. So I could have talked to Gustavo all day. I'm sure you'll enjoy our conversation. Hi, I'm Gustavo Rossetti. I'm here from Chicago. I'm the CEO and founder of Fearless Culture, a culture design agency. I'm also the author of A Remote But Not Distant. And the designer, the inventor of Culture Canvas as well? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> that, too. That, that too. That too, that too. Your new book is fab. Continuing on your work your life's work, I guess, about being deliberate about designing culture and now trying to adjust this big challenge we've got, which is what if we're not in the office some of the time, all of the time? How do we deliberately design a culture? And I've had maybe three guests on the podcast in the last six months who've all said, look, if you're remote or even some have gone so far as to say, if you're hybrid, you probably have a good company, but you can't have a great company. And so what do you think? What, you can have a great company what, 
whether you have an office or not. Is that, what do you think? Indeed, I think that if you have asked me these questions, a question like, I don't know, 18 months ago, probably my answer would be different. First of all, when I started the journey of writing the book, I had my own like uh, preferences. I built my career and, and built more of so my practice in the office. No? So I went through the corporate ladder in the office. And then when I started doing my consulting work, everything I did in person. But then the pandemic hit, and it wasn't just the need to start doing things remotely because we didn't have a choice. I think that the pandemic accelerated lots of shifts that we were already seeing. So in that regards, I think that we need to see or answer that question through a different lens. Things have changed. People's preferences have changed. People have realized that they can work remotely. Most companies not only stayed alive in the pandemic working like that, but also many companies improved in terms of many indicators. So I think that in the end, it's not one or the other. We need to stop thinking binary terms, the office versus remote, and rather think, when shall we use which? So depending on the type of work that we're trying to do, for example, deep solo work, if I need to write a presentation, an article, uh, put together a proposal for my boss or for stakeholders, I don't need to be in the office. Actually, it's better to do it from home. When we want to build culture, you can do it remotely, but then having time, with, I mean, going out for dinner, nothing beats that. You know, the experience to have some fun with your colleagues and, and, and talk about life, not work, well, that's better doing in person. Making decisions, research shows that it's better to do it asynchronously, each person at their own time, and it doesn't matter where we're working from because we have more time to reflect. We can work out of a document, capture our thoughts, and that's more effective than being in a room and talking and talking because then everyone tried to impose their perspective. If you want to do a, I don't know, a, a sprint to come up with new ideas, well, maybe getting people in a room for five days nonstop without interruptions, that's also great. You can do that remotely, but for most companies, it works better to do in person. So the thing is not a one model, but it's we need to start rethinking what are we trying to accomplish as a team and then think which is the best way to achieve it. And that's the new challenge of this method. Now, many companies are determined hybrid by my employees have to come three days a week. That's not how it works. So why? I mean, is this in coming four or three, three and a half? What for? So we need to start with the question, what kind of work does this team need to achieve? And then what's the best or a way to achieve it. I do think some of that two days a week or three days a week in the office, I think that some of that is driven by from a corporate legal responsibility. So if you are home-based, certainly in the UK, there's there's some legislation that got put to one side for COVID, which is health and safety in the office. So if your employees work from home, you have the same ob- legal obligation about their home office than you would if they're in your office or wherever their main place of work is. And so, you know, if it's three days a week, then I'd, I've got, you know, I can, I can dodge the working from home issue because their main place of work is in, is in my office and I can control the environment. But, but what about some of the research that pre-pandemic stuff around the impact of people not being on the office on their, their promotion prospects? Well, that's the, there's a bias that basically has to do that if you're not close there, if you're not where decisions are being made, if you're not being visible, then you might miss lots of uh, promotions opportunities, career growth, etc. 
those things, I mean, once again, it is how it used to work. The point is, what are we going to do now about it? So how can we become more mindful as a company to make sure that we're not just promoting the people that are more uh, visible? Because once again, one of the shifts I address in the book also is in the past, managers used to reward visibility. And visibility, not just physical visibility, but visibility in terms of being busy. So if I'm in lots of meetings, I'm the first to arrive, the last to leave. I'm always sending emails, like looking busy. Managers thought, oh, this guy is really hardworking. He's doing his job. Wow. But in the end, many people were seen as visible, but weren't achieving as much as other people that were maybe more introverts. They, They were more effective, more efficient, and still got the work done. So those people, the latter, are saying, hey, if I can do the same work, working maybe three days from home, two days from the office, whatever the arrangement is, why should I get punished? Because I'm not being uh, as busy as the other. So this, uh, from an HR perspective, from a manager perspective, requires facilitating conversations and being more mindful about it, to make sure that you don't just uh, take care of the people that you see more often, regardless if they are the best or not. Yeah. So look, let's start at the beginning, right? Because this is... This is designing a company culture. So what's your definition of culture and why should anyone care? Well, culture, it's uh, they should care because culture is like uh, amplifies and magnifies everything. So both the good and the bad within our organization. So uh, when COVID started and people started having lots of meetings and they were exhausted and the term Zoom fatigue came to, to life, that wasn't because of COVID. It was simply because what happened that a culture was in a bad place. Maybe they lack trust. Maybe they have a good process in place. And then that boom, that bad behavior got amplified. So if you have a good culture, all the good things can also get amplified and magnified in the right direction. So that's why people should care about culture. Culture includes not just people define culture as the way we do things here, but it's also the way we don't do things here because not all, not all aspects of culture are good. There are also things that we need to improve and we're missing. But it also encompasses mindsets and emotions. So the way we feel, the way we think, and the way we behave here, that's how I define culture. And it's a system. So people say, what do you need to change behavior so you can improve emotions? So the other way around, it all depends, but they're all connected. And what do you think has to change? Because one of the things that certainly I've got some data on from clients and uh, Nick Marks of Friday Pulse shared with me some data as well, which looks as though the sort of the ties that bind people together seem to be weaker for those employees who joined through the pandemic. And that churn in those employees might be higher than, than the base who'd spent time out for dinner before the pandemic. How do you build a remote work or a hybrid work where people feel a sense of belonging? That's a great point, uh, and I think it's being intentional. But I think I want to first step back for a second. When we're analyzing data, we're putting all the information together, and that's a problem because some companies have been very intentional about onboarding new employees, creating body systems. So, for example, I joined a GitLab, and they have a great onboarding system. Not only they find me a body, but that person is going to put me in contact with five people they believe I need to have a virtual coffee with, and then they're going to do exactly the same. So based on my role, my background, my personality, my interests, they start introducing me not just to people I need to work with 
from a functional standpoint, but also people I might get along well with. So they design that experience. So when we see results from research, we're putting together what companies that were really good at that versus other companies that say they were doing a lousy job before the pandemic and they continue to do an even worse job <laughs> doing. So that the data basically talks about both cases. Um, I think that going back to your question, it's about intentionality. We need to design. There's a lot, and people hate this this fact, but we talk about the water cooler conversations, right? And people felt that water cooler were those moments where culture and sometimes even innovation came to life. But there's no research that shows that actually those moments really were effective into creating new ideas or building culture. And most of the cases, those water cooler conversations were exclusive because it was the meeting after the meeting. So the manager left, the colleague that we don't like and we always blame left, and then we talk behind their back. So that was about building a good culture. I was going to say the same thing. In, like you were talking about good cultures and bad cultures. In good cultures, they might be innovative. In bad ones, people would just bitch and moan in, when they're getting a coffee together. Exactly. You know? So the point is, like, uh, how do we create those moments? And those moments can be created virtually can create in person or a combination of both. And I think that now it requires a lot of effort from managers that in the past relied on, oh, culture is going to grow organically. Yeah, there are some elements of culture that are organic, but you need to set up certain parameters. So the companies that have, before the pandemic, they could tell were very successful in building culture, they were very intentional. It wasn't just about defining a set of values and maybe a purpose, so oh, that's a culture. But they were there modeling the right behavior, creating sense of belonging, which is the glue that brings people together in any team. So they focus on that and they design it. They didn't just let it happen. So now the ones that believe that, oh, culture emerges organically on its own, now they are suffering because they don't know what to do. And what are some of the things that people could do to be deliberate about this um, designing a sense of belonging? One of the, the, the great ways to approach this is, I think that in the past, we tend to think about belonging at a macro level, right? So basically at a company level, how do we belong to the company? And the culture of an organization is the result or the sum of lots of subcultures. It, Usually when we talk about subcultures, people get a little bit uneasy, leaders, because they feel like subcultures are like silos. They are divisions. But in the end, there's a difference. I mean, all silos are subcultures, but not all subcultures are silos. Silos are when you have, like, a, imagine like a software no, that doesn't speak to another. So the subcultures are different systems that need to speak to the main frame, to the main software of the company. So today, many companies are putting more emphasis into how we create belonging at a micro level. So if I'm part of a design team or a tech team or maybe a regional team, they put more emphasis into that. GoTo, which is the, the manufacturer of many software, like GoTo meetings, similar software, collaboration and communication software, when they started working remotely after the pandemic, they say, hey, we're saving a lot of money because we don't have as much office space as we used to have. And now they give people in money at a regional level and people get together on a weekend to do some, I don't know, they go to a food bank, they do some community work, they run some kind of, a, I don't know, 10K, whatever that is, 
to raise money to help a community. So people don't get together to talk about work. They get together to do something meaningful that's connected to the place where they live, even if they don't necessarily work together. They just happen to live together, close, sorry. Uh, and they do it, of course, with the company swag and shirts with the logo of the company. So that kind of experience really brings a sense of belonging in a different kind of a way. You know? So thank you for listening to The Melting Pot and listening to today's conversation with Gustavo Rossetti. As a special gift to you, the audience, the first 25 people to email in and ask for a copy of his book, we'll send you a copy of his book. That's on me. If you email Dominic at monkhouseandcompany.com, just put in the subject line, remote, not distant, we'll send the first 25 people who send in an email, we'll send them a copy of Gustavo's new book. Thanks for listening. Thinking about the things that from the culture canvas that I would you know, talk to clients about that might be harder, psychological safety maybe, or even the rituals. And I suppose in a hybrid world, those rituals are one of the reasons why you might go to the office. As you were looking at businesses and studying best practice, do you, do you have any thoughts on, you know, in a hybrid or remote workplace, how you are intentional about psychological safety and rituals? Yeah, um, psychological safety, the news, it's that uh, in a remote environment or hybrid, it works well-designed, once again, not every, it delivers better results. So, for example, a lot of techniques into how you facilitate meetings and, and conversations that are more inclusive that companies started to adopt because of the nature of work. A lot of people from a, a minority groups or groups that usually are not taken into consideration talk about women, people from uh, different ethnicities, etc. they feel much more protective working remotely than in the office because there's less microaggressions or at least the microaggressions are not so frequent or so evident. On their hand, if they are in a meeting and something bad happened and they feel like a, an easy or not being considered or maybe censored, then they can take a break, they can go to their other room, they can grab a coffee, whatever, and then it's easy for them to release that by bad emotion. While if you're in the office, you leave the meeting, then you go to your desk, you feel pissed off and you feel people watching you because you have you went through a bad experience. So there's a lot of great uh, things that happen. Uh, we need to be more aware when it comes to facilitation. So we've been doing a lot of work with managers, uh, uh, training them and their team members to facilitate meetings because it's an art. It's not just having someone dealing with the agenda. So a lot of techniques that managers need to learn how to facilitate those conversations to build psychological safety. Yeah. What about those rituals? When I think about it, I think back to religion, really. And I, you know, I went to a, a succession of Catholic schools and there's lots of liturgy and, and lots of ritual, you know. I can still remember all the Latin responses from benediction. And so how do you put those types of things in place where some people are potentially in the office and some people are remote. It's that, that hybrid thing is the hard thing. Cause if we're all in the office, we'll potentially we'll go for lunch or we'll go for a pint, but. <laughs> Absolutely. First of all, uh, when we're talking about hybrid and even for companies that are hundred percent remote, they get to meet at some point. It's not that because they work fully remote, they never get to see their team members. And I think that's where people get stuck. Most of the time they do work remotely, but then at some point, uh, for example, Slack, gathers uh, by team. Now, the whole company, they get people together once a quarter. 
and people get together. They go, so they have that. Then most of the time they work remotely or they work in a hybrid, uh, depending on the team. But they have this, they design and they secure specific moments for people to get together. So even companies that uh, I mentioned, GitLab, yeah, they work 100% remotely. They are the best. You can learn a lot from them. But from time to time, the whole company or different teams get together to spend time, to build relationships, to catch up, to discuss more strategic or hairy issues that they need to resolve, they get together. So that's that's why I always say don't people think of one or the other versus, no, it's a combination. Hybrid doesn't mean that we have two worlds. It's we need to design when we work at our own pace and when we meet and get together. Going back to uh, rituals, many companies adapted their rituals to a hybrid or remote space. So, for example, a Dropbox, and of course, it's not the same. They have one of their values is a smiling cupcake. And when people uh, used to go to the office, they gave them like a box of cupcakes so they can eat them, get all the sugar fix, get the value, bring the value to life, but also uh, share with friends. When people start working remotely, they created like a box. It's not the same, but you can see with the ingredients, cupcakes, and people could bake their own cupcakes at home. And then they could share the pictures. They could eat them with their family, with their kids, with their whatever. So still that connection was there. Similarly, Zappos used to have a garden where people could grow different produce, different vegetables, and then they eat that at the cafeteria. Uh-huh. What happened during the pandemic, the HR team came with an idea and they started sending whoever wanted, like a earth kit with different, let's say, cilantro, rosemary, sage, whatever, basil, whatever thing you want to grow. And people started growing their small version of that garden at home. And then they cooked and they shared the experience in social media and internal channels uh, with people. You know? So it was also a ritual. Everyone was doing it at their own pace, but they share what happened with their own gardens. Yeah, I think that's really good. I, one of the things that I came across recently was I suspect that the budget for the office, historically, you know, you had to have an office. You had to heat it and cool it. And, and so there's an amount of money. And it wasn't discretionary. And then I was with a client recently who'd worked out how much it was going to cost them next year to bring the teams together. And they saw that as a huge amount of money. And that was discretionary. And so... I'm not sure that people really knew how much the office space was costing them before. And, you know, they see it as potentially a cost saving in the future. You know, oh, well, we don't have the office space, so we don't need to spend money. But certainly when I look at clients who designed their business remote first, you know, they are putting a lot of money, you know, like maybe as much as they would have been putting historically into their office budget, into that let's meet together Let's build relationships and let's, let's build relationships and not work. You know, you were talking earlier about people, you know, doing a 10K or doing work for charity and being really deliberate about we come together to do this together, not to come together to work. But that whole difference between sort of discretionary and non-discretionary, I think, is, is interesting. And, and it sort of was hidden or is hidden. You know, people that one doesn't flow seamlessly from another. Somebody's saying, oh, that's my budget. Look, I've got a saving oh, we need to spend money over here. Well, that'll be a discretionary cost then, which we haven't budgeted for. So I think in some companies, it's a burden on the managers to say, well, where will we find the money to do some of this discretionary discretionary work or discretionary meetings? You know, it's, if you fly people halfway around the world, it doesn't matter how you do it. It's always going to be expensive. Absolutely. 
I think that one of the first advocates or biggest advocates of change are the CFOs because to your point, they say, hey, we can save a lot of money. No, so I think that's important that we don't just save it all, but it's we need to reinvest part in building culture. So uh, uh, that's critical. I think that you mentioned flying people around the world at different policies. So if you do it at a micro level, it's less expensive than bringing the whole company at the same time. There's also some companies that, for example, they agreed not to uh, reduce people's salary because they moved to a cheaper, let's say, to another country that's cheaper. But then they have the caveat, well, then you need to pay for the ticket when you need to fly. We pay for maybe hosting, but you... So there are different arrangements that companies are experimented with to try to, to overcome that, for sure. But you need to your point. I mean, I think that you nail it. People need to be intentional that they need to save money and put it on, on building culture. One of the things that you, you talked earlier about innovation, and maybe if you're doing a sprint, you bring people together. One of the things which is, certainly you mentioned it in the book, you know, let's get away from annual appraisals and do frequent feedback. Most people don't like difficult conversations. I suppose otherwise they'd be called easy conversations, but uh, <laughs> conversations that the, th the thought of this conversation makes them uncomfortable, that type of discussion, either with your boss or your peer or your subordinates, whichever way it is. And I think certainly anecdotally, the feedback to me is that people find that harder to do on Zoom than face-to-face. -face. Have you come up, come across any best practice or ways in which people could, you know, think differently about feedback that would serve them well in this new world? Absolutely. I think that what you said, like it wasn't, it was never easy. So people were avoiding those conversations in person. So now they have another excuse to say, oh, it's difficult to do it on Zoom, right? One of the companies I talked to in my, my research for the book was a Liberty IT, which is the, the IT branch for the Liberty Insurance Company. I talked to the manager of the 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 Ireland the Irish kind of a branch, and uh, he went through this specific same journey. You no know, challenge about no, we are not going to give feedback. It's hard. We cannot do it via Zoom. But at some point, they realized, hey, it's been one month, three months, six months, and counting. So they started practicing it, and they decided to do it very simple, like uh, maybe one or two things uh, and practice. And then they, by simply doing it, they build that muscle. One thing that he recalls, that I recall him telling me, the manager, is like uh, that even in the office, if your boss, your manager calls you into their office to give you bad news or bad appraisal, people watch, you know, because they're all these fishbowl kind of, <laughs> so people know if you're getting like a, a good review or a bad review. And then when you open the door, they look in your face, they're going to be smiling, happy because you got promoted. You're going to look like, hey, I'm going to lose this job. I hate my... So, even those things also play a role. When you have a one-on-one, -on -one, it's safer to talk about things because the other people are not watching. So I think that either either um, either has its pros, either method has its pros or cons. One of the things you mentioned regular feedback, the thing that gets the makes it easier to have those uncomfortable conversations is when you need to wait. When the issue is small, it's easy to address it. But if you wait three months, six months, and the issue becomes bigger and bigger, that's when it becomes a tougher conversation. So the advice is small doses, approach, feedback on the go, request feedback. No, When the manager requests you as a team member for feedback, then they're opening the door for you also to be more open to asking for feedback as well. 
Yes, and do you have any sense of uh, regularity? Do you think weekly, fortnightly, monthly? Do you have sense of best practice? It all depends. Uh, I think that we don't want to move from once a year to every day, you know, because it's like <laughs> to, to obsess about feedback, we can get stuck or we can be like a, rehashing every issue. I think at least I would say one once a month, Many managers have like a weeklies one-on-one with your, it's not necessarily feedback, but it's more like a conversation. What's going on? How can I help you? Is there something that's not working? So those are really good to have one-on-ones short in the calendar. If you get together, you don't have anything to discuss. Well, see you next week. That's okay. You don't need to talk if you don't have content to discuss. No? But definitely once a month, once every other week, it's a great uh, frequency for sure. The innovation stuff where you said, you know, look, it must be easier to do this in the office, but you can do it remotely. Have you got a sense of how much better it is to do it face-to-face versus using tools, online tools? Yeah, I think it depends on the on the culture because there are many companies that are doing innovation remotely. I can tell you in my practice with clients, we want better results using Mural and Zoom and similar tools than in person because it's easy to control people like uh, one thing that happens i as part of my training i was training stanford d school and it's all about innovation and basically you learn this idea no they, they were the creator of the brainstorm with post-its and all that stuff that it's very fast-paced very for extroverted no that people building on anyone's everyone's ideas and everyone's shining and creating all at the same time the reality is many people don't thrive in that type of brainstorming session because they like to have quiet time. They have to write at their own pace. They don't want to be influenced for, by, by the loudest voice in the room. So sometimes you can manage that better uh, remotely. But once again, it requires a lot of discipline and training So until people get it. So my point about the office is some people get better being together for innovation. Some people can do a mix of both. But whatever the, the case is, it's important that they sign that experience. So having people in the office, it's not going to bring them ideas to life. And bringing people in front of a Zoom with a mural board, it's not going to make them innovative either. No? So what's the process and how you facilitate it? And that's the, the, the key. Yeah. I, and it's interesting because, look, before the pandemic, we I wasn't using mural at all. And then it became a thing we had to use. And now it's one of those things that has survived survive face back face to face there are you know sometimes when we use post-it notes and other times when you know even though people are in person you know people will will get onto mural and sometimes it can just make it happen faster um and everybody's engaged simultaneously and it can force the pace which is good sometimes you just think the energy's going the pace is dropping let's just dry drop on mural and and have a dose of efficiency you talk about a culture of collective feedback. Mm-hmm. And what what's that? Uh, maybe you could expand on that concept for the listeners. Absolutely. And I think that builds on the question you asked previously, how to make those conversations easily. When we turn feedback into an individual thing, we're trying to bl- basically either find someone to blame if the team screws up, who, who screwed up, uh-huh. or... If the team won a new client, who did, who made it happen? So it always about one person. Collective feedback is discussing things as a team. So I mentioned, for example, the 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 All Blacks, the New Zealand's national rugby team, that they have this practice of discussing feedback as a team, rather than saying, "Hey, you screw up, you didn't play well, 
and starting like finger pointing and dividing the team, they always discuss how can we play better as a team? Not how can you play better? How can I play? So it's not about it's like collectively, because in the end, what I do, it's connected to what my colleagues and team members do. So it invites to think as a team versus thinking about individual behavior. Of course, at some point you need to address individual behavior when there are big issues, but the reflecting, like for example, what's working, what's not working, what are the things that we want to start doing, stop doing, continue doing as a team, that opens up because it makes them feel like a more in coordination and collaboration than in individual terms. Yeah, the RAF display team, the red arrows do that. They come down from a practice or a display and they get the video of the display and whoever's in charge starts by critiquing his own performance and asking for input from the team. And they do it as soon after as possible as well, I think. Is that, uh, I guess the All Blacks are discussing it after training or after a game. What they do is, uh, and sorry, I'm using another rugby team and not England, but... <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> Reaching us a great team. The winningest sports team in the world. Yeah. And uh, and yes, they do it pretty kind of uh, close to the practice or close to the game. Usually they, they take a small break so they can watch the recording on their own uh, individually and then they get together. Okay. That's that's important to have that transition. But I think it's great. In co- I did use it with a lot of teams in company. When people start thinking about how can we work better, it moves from blame, from you're stupid, you don't get it, or this that person's fault and the person that's not in the room fault, you know, we start uh, getting becoming more respons- more responsible, more accountable as well. And so one of the things you've got there, if you're sitting down and you're an all black and you're you're looking at the video, you've got some objective you've got something that's objective, or you've you've got you've got something concrete. And so often you'd ask an employee, you know, at the end of the day, do you know whether you've had a great day or not. Mm-hmm. And so often people will just, I don't know, came in, did some work, went home, you know, and there's a lack of, there's a lack of clarity on what were they expected to do and how did they do? You know, it's like getting the score. It's like annual appraisals. You get the score a year later. Yeah. And so do you have any sense of where good companies are doing that well? That sort of, you know, making sure that people at the end of the day know whether they've had a good day or not. You got some good examples there. I'm thinking about like a, a, even if it's not you had a good day, so creating moments for, as I mentioned before, like one-on-one, so moments for people to discuss uh, uh-huh. what's going on. I think that uh, most of the feedback in companies tend to happen about the person. So when managers give feedback, they judge the person. You are not doing this. You should be doing that. Versus focusing more on the outcome. You know, when we uh-huh. talk about collective feedback, the old blacks don't talk about people. They talk about the match. How can we play better? How can we score faster? How can we strengthen our defense? So they focus on work. And you mentioned that earlier too. Sometimes people are not clear what they're doing. They just show up to work from nine to five, nine to seven, whatever the schedule is, and that's it. So I think the, the intentionality about feedback not only needs to be more frequent and collected, but focusing more on the work. What are we achieving together? And how can we change the impact and the outcome of what we do? And that's that's the shift. Not focusing so much on the person their personality their style i don't know how you took i don't know how you ask questions well yeah sure but is that the real key where we want to focus not even our kids want that type of feedback when we're parents imagine someone at work having their manager tell them now you shouldn't be doing this you shouldn't be doing that 
No, managers tend to act like the source of truth, like they know better, and they're always telling people how they need to improve. So talking about tips, Patagonia removed the notion that managers should give feedback, and rather they're always asking for feedback. So managers are in the mindset of, I want to become better. What if I have a screw up? What can I do better? How can I better serve you? When you do that, that opens the conversation. Everyone starts asking for feedback. Okay, and it becomes a coaching organization mm-hmm. rather than one of command and control. It's interesting because there are some teams that just aren't teams. I was thinking as you were talking there, there are certainly lots of bits of the organization that uh, historically have been easy to measure, like sales. You know, mm-hmm. each individual salesperson has a quota normally and the sales team has a quota. But in fact, taking your your all blacks analogy of a team i don't know you take the finance department you say okay well what are we doing how should we measure our outcomes mm-hmm. uh how are we doing against that how could we do that better i don't know we closing month end after 10 days maybe we want to do it in 10 maybe we've got 60 debtor days we want to get it down to 59 debtor days whereas the sales team is actually not a team the sales team is just a group of individuals normally and so do you know what i mean like if i take your sort of the, the thread of the conversation Actually, the way in which you apply that is the teams that would typically not be able to measure something are actually the teams that you could improve on. And the teams that historically we thought we had the measures in place are probably not actually teams at all. Yeah, because we have measures that are um, bonus and incentive systems that are based on the individual. So let's say that you're hitting all the records month over month. And probably because you've found a method and a practice to close sales much faster, much effective than mine. Would you share it with me? No, because you're not incentivized to do that. Because if you I, Gustavo starts becoming better, then my bonus is going to decrease. But if you have a collective bonus system or a mix between individual and collective uh, bonus, then people are going to start sharing because they're going to get the benefit. Because if the whole sales department goes down, you're going to go down with your department. But no one wants to break that starting by the head of sales. You know? <laughs> But the point is, we talk what's culture. Culture is what, what you reward and punish. And if you reward individual outcomes, then people are going to behave individualistically. They're not going to be team, team players. I tell you what, I've got, here's, here's a thing that comes up all the time. You know, on Culture Design Canvas, you've got reward and, what do we reward and punish? Mm-hmm. I get some clients really take a visceral, a visceral dislike to the word punish. They say, oh, we don't, we don't punish anybody for anything. Uh, we hate the word punish. That's against our culture. Um, it feels too deliberate and vindictive. Have you ever had, ever had that feedback? Yeah, I heard that many times. But then what happens? When we went through the different iterations of the canvas before we, we landed in this version, there was the uh, what we encourage and what we discourage, what we promote and we don't pro- Then there's no action because in the end, the words of a leader mean nothing if then the behavior is not aligned with that. So what are you punishing? You're punishing people. Let me give you an example. We were working with not one, but two companies that this problem came out the same week, exactly, talking about behaviors that we reward and punish. And they were punishing basically high performers. Why? Because they were given a low performers a pass they were doing nothing because they were just letting them so who was taking over the work that the low performers weren't doing the high performers not only they were doing great work but they were taking work from other teams as well so in the end your company was punishing those people 
you were rewarding the people that average, that were mediocre, that weren't delivering, and then you were punishing the other. Oh, that's a really interesting way to look at it. I, I have to say that uh, when I ask people, what do they do with their values? It's the same thing. You know, look, we've got our values. You've got your behaviors. So who wins and who loses? Or taking no action is action, mm -hmm. right? You know, because you, you've, you, you, and you might not have deliberately doing that, but it's just getting people to reflect. So when you're doing that, you're using there to capture the culture as it is today, because what they're doing is they're punishing high performers today. And so then it's okay. Well, if that's what we do today, what should we be doing tomorrow? Exactly. First, you start with where, where's the culture today, and then you start making decisions. Like, do we want to continue to sustain this culture, or what are we going to change? You know? and, and going back to the word punish, I think that in the end, if you let, for example, that company say, we punish people who break the law, or we punish uh, sexual harassment. So that means that they're not going to tolerate some things can get you a red card immediately. Some you're going to get a, a maybe yellow or green or whatever color until or orange until you get into the red. But it's important that if you do nothing as a leader, when people are breaking, you not know, crossing that line, then your culture is not going to sustain. It's going to collapse. The people that have a very, very effective culture, they draw a line and they respect it. This is okay. We're going to reward you for this. And this is not okay. Yes. Well, and often I say to people, okay, who did you fire? Who, who did you let go? And why did you let them go? And let's get into that because actually that person got punished for something. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so what, so what was it? You know, poor performance, sexual harassment. It was something, wasn't it? When we didn't, we didn't let them go for no reason. Absolutely. And if they don't fire anyone, then they're letting <laughs> a lot of bad behavior kind of happen and that's it. <laughs> And uh, so just one other thing in the book that you talk about is, is about agility, which I think that sort of application of that agile methodology to business more broadly than software development is, is, uh, is really helpful and useful. And so what did you find out when you were writing the book? Yeah, I think that one of the key, I talk, when we talk about agility, one of the two key elements have to do with decision makings and how we manage collaboration, meetings and not meetings. And especially decision-making, I think it's the most critical aspect because if you want to move fast, you need to decentralize decision-making authority, not just empower people who, once again, sounds like, oh, we encourage people to make decisions. No. Do you really distribute decision-making rights so people that are closer to the problem, closer to the customer, can make decisions? In most of the cases, people don't have that power, so they get stuck waiting for the manager to come and make decisions. So they're not going to get that speed on one hand, but also if you have a distributed team, you cannot have the manager weighing into every decision. No? So you need to give people more power and authority to make the call. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, I had Hurst Schultz from Ritz-Carlton on uh, a little while ago, and he talks, you know, that whole, you know, $2,000, anybody in a Ritz-Carlton hotel has got, had $2,000 could fix any problem that they would see. And then deliberate behaviors that would put them in a position where they might find those problems to fix. And it also meant that some people never spent any money, which means they were blind. Do you, know, do you see what I mean? You, you have a system like that that's, that's positive reinforcement, but also you end up with these black holes. Yeah. Because if, if somebody doesn't give any money, then obviously they weren't looking. If everybody gives money out and somebody doesn't. So I, I really like those um, systems that just appear to be very positive, but in fact have got you get extra data, extra rich data. Absolutely, yeah. 
who spends too much, who spends, you know, which is not good. But if someone doesn't spend a dime, then like, are you paying attention? Do you care? So, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, it's free telling. Absolutely. Where we are now in your life, what, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Who I don't know how to cook certain dishes that are learned <laughs> later on because I like cooking. <laughs> what what uh, what have you learned to cook that you wish you could have cooked earlier? Uh, good question. I mean, duck a l'orange. I learned to cook uh-huh. when I was twenty five. I wish I could. I know how to cook that when I was eighteen. <laughs> No, I know. I mean, that's a tricky question. I think that on many things, I would say, hey, because when you look back into when you screw up, but on the other hand, I think that the lack of knowledge on one hand was what drove me to make certain decisions that probably without that in, with information, maybe I wouldn't have made those decisions. I once got lost and I had to survive in a mountain and I sleep overnight without any kind of <laughs> preparation and whatever. So I wish I knew how to <laughs> know the way back before getting lost and it was raining and cold and whatever. But on the other hand, the experience of having to actually survive of when you are in a life-death situation, so you're on your own and if you don't stay awake for the whole night and make sure that you don't freeze to death, then then you learn from it. So I wish I, I knew the right path so I wouldn't have gone the, the lost. But on the other hand, I enjoy the, the learning after I've survived. And also. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And uh, so your book, Remote Not Distant, design a company culture that will help you thrive in a hybrid workplace, out now from all good booksellers. What other books do you think people should pick up or books that maybe have had an have inspired you along the way? Absolutely. Uh, one book I like to recommend is Tasha Urich's uh, Insight, which is all about self-awareness. I think that she calls it the meta skill, so the mother of all skills in uh-huh. today's uh, society. And basically because we talk about feedback and when we're not aware, uh, we have lots of blind spots. So we need to get feedback to see what we can't see. And one of the things that she addressed uh, through her research is we all think that we are much more self-aware that we know ourselves much better than we actually do. And when it comes to leaders, the gap is gigantic. So a majority of them think they are self-aware, but rather less than 10% of leaders actually are. So they're making decisions full of blind spots. So they better read that book. <laughs> what was, sorry, what was the title? The title was? Insight. Insight. What else you got? From a culture standpoint, a book I always enjoy is Creativity Inc. that talks about how Pixar was able to build that culture. And I think one of the the things that people miss, because they were super intentional, Pixar, is that uh, people see that and say, oh, they, they don't realize how hard it's to build that type of collaborative, open, psychologically safe culture in a movie studio. Because most movie studios are really top down, they're very vertical. The director is like God; they do whatever they want. While in Pixar, actually, you can talk to any director. There are no egos. It's very open. No? So, I think that the, you need to read that book in the context of how other movie studios really operate, and to see how much of a progress those guys made. And uh, we talked a little bit about the All Blacks. They are one of the one of the rituals that they have, which I got from Legacy by James Kerr, is 
as they're traveling over the Severn Bridge into Wales, they all jump on the seats on the bus and shout, we never lose in Wales. And so I'm mm. like, <laughs> which takes me, which, you know, just is a bit sort of like onboarding. You know, if you've never, if you have just joined the All Blacks and that's the first thing that happens on an international tour, it's, um, it's very good. Very good. Um, Gustavo, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show again. Thank you very much indeed for coming on and sharing the insights from Remote Not Distant. Thank you, Dom, for having me again. It was an honor for me to be here. And thank you for the audience to be here as well and listening to us. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.